listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hi there, welcome to episode 44 of Sitting Now. I'm Kenny Higgins. Uh, and once again, I'm alone. What a surprise. I blame Kim. Let's blame Kim. That's the best way to do it. But before we all go and attack him with pitchforks, uh, let's check out some adverts. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes. So keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. What's better than shooting the shit about the occult? Shooting with us, of course. I'm Avael, tender loving co host of Outer Symmetry. If you're looking for a podcast that covers everything from Lady Gaga to the Montauk Monster, you're in the right place. Myself and my husband Adamus pull you down the rabbit hole with us twice a month to keep you informed and up to date on all the topics you want to know about. So sit down, tune in, and fade out. Subscribe to Outer Symmetry today. And we're back. And uh, this week's guest is an author called Gregory Sams, who's just written a book called Son of God. That's S-U-N, not S-O-N, of God. Uh, the book's all about does our son have a living consciousness and uh, I'm really looking forward to interviewing him. He's an established character in the counterculture actually. He's been around for quite a long time, uh, since the, <laughs> that sounds quite bad, but since the 60s he's been uh, involved in one kind of uh, countercultural thing or another from uh, I believe health foods or natural foods uh, all the way up to uh, chaos theory. So yeah, check out the interview and I'll talk to you after that. Hi, Gregory Sams. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? It's a difficult one to be brief on, but I'll try. <laughs> um, I uh, unexpectedly got involved in uh, opening up the UK's first restaurant to ever serve natural and organic foods in 1968. Um, instead of going back to finish a university career, I, I did that. And that led to a health to the first natural food store, which led to the distribution and manufacturing companies, Harmony Foods and Whole Earth. Then I made the first ever veggie veggie burger as my um, sort of a ticket out of the natural food industry. I, I came up with the name, I came up with the formula, sold the hell out of it, and it did really well. Um, then I discovered uh, I sold that in 1988, and a couple years later, I discovered chaos theory. Um, I read the book by James Gleick, Chaos, and that just completely blew me away, and it 
brought together lots of strands of my my life or my knowledge suddenly came together when I understood chaos theory. So many other things I already knew made more sense. And I determined to open up the world's first ever shop devoted to chaos theory, mm. which I did shortly thereafter, just for Christmas 1990, um, and printed thousands of fractal postcards, posters, T-shirts, even jigsaw puzzles, which are pretty damn fiendish. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, actually. Yeah, they would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're great fun. I was just looking at some of the old prints of them before, uh, a few days ago. Um, and then I would start licensing my images to libraries and other people, and that resulted in millions of them being reproduced around the world, though you don't get much money for that. Mm. Um, but my dad had always given me this, uh, what, he gave, gave me some great wisdom as I was growing up, growing up, and one of his bits of wisdom was, you know, one, uh, one picture is worth a thousand words. Um, but with fractals, it wasn't. There is a real message behind chaos theory. Um, about self-organization in the world, which I thought had to come out to to people. Mm. Yeah, I think it had so much, so many implications for how we run our world, or rather, how we would let our world run itself. Um, and I knew that wasn't an area that scientists were going to look into, and that's why I opened the shop. But in this case, the pictures weren't worth a thousand words, and I had to write many thousand words to like. <laughs> To put this picture across, because we're so used to, um, yeah, nothing is permanent except death and taxes, you know, and this idea that we have to have people on top of us taking our money to tell us to somehow better our lives. Mm. And even though we have a long history of, of them doing that and screwing up on it and screwing up our lives at the same time, um, it's not really a long history in terms of how long we've been on the planet because we've been here two or a million years at least, possibly quite a few more million years. And this has only been going on in the last four to 5,000 years. Mm. So it's fairly recent in our history on the planet. And, and it's this top-down approach from you know, somebody up on uh, above you with power saying, do this or I will harm you in some way. I'll take your money away. I'll put you in prison. I'll execute you. Follow the, follow the laws. And that's not a good principle. And, and we just see it failing time and again, whether we vote the people in who decide what we do, or even when they're kind of enlightened, benevolent characters. Um, it still doesn't produce the correct results. Mm. And this um, that, that led to my first book anyway, which is Uncommon Sense, The State is Out of Date. Mm. And that also changed my perceptions in such a way that some years later I, I wrote my second book, which recognized the sun as a um, an actual living entity and recognize the self-organization that takes place in our universe. So our universe is really a bottom-up construct from you know, actual atoms and subatomic particles and molecules organizing into weather systems, mountains, flowers, human beings, and um, solar systems and galaxies. And you see this tremendous self-organization going on in a universe which is, as I put it, filled with intelligence and design, 
but without the need for an intelligent designer. So that was it, Natural Foods, Chaos Theories, um, a book about you know, the fact that the state is out of date, and then sun worship. So that's where I am now, if you like. <laughs> Part of history. Can we talk about a little bit about um, how you kind of got into the natural foods industry? It's always something that's uh, kind of interested me. And what was the kind of what inspired you to, you know, kind of introduce it to the UK in a, in a way? <laughs> well, it was it was it's the bull butterfly effect and chaos theory. I was just thinking tonight, you know, somebody must find the Tunisian policewoman who slapped the the, the vegetable seller who set fire to himself because mm. this one act of slapping a vegetable seller has looked overturned the whole Middle East. And in, in our case, it was some Japanese soldier who shot a, fired something into an ammunition dump that my father was at and nearly died. Um, he came out of it, though, and he had a relapse a few years later before I was even born. And he was, doctors gave up on him. They didn't know what was wrong. He was down to about... Uh, 40 kilos, whatever that is in stone, excuse me. And um, and somebody sent him to a Japanese doctor, Dr. Nakadadi, who put him on what you would today call a really healthy natural food diet. He had to eat whole cereals, no processed foods, like no, not even tinned foods, no frozen foods, um, no sugar, no meat, but lots of whole cereals, vegetables, beans, stuff like that. And, of course, he was instantly or, you know, with, he immediately turned around and got better. Thus, I was came into the world. And my brother was four years older than me. And we were both brought up thereby on a, on a fairly natural food diet. It wasn't as strict as when it was healing my father, but we never had much meat. Our sugar was strictly rationed. Um, and my mum made her own her own bread, and I had lots of oatmeal for breakfast. So we were brought up healthily. Naturally, as teenagers, we both rebelled against it and started eating junk food and, and stuff out there. But then um, I was a vegetarian. I became vegetarian at 10 because I didn't like meat. I found out there was this thing you could be that avoided having to eat meat. Mm. And um, so, so, so we were kind of biologically primed for it. My brother then discovered, he heard about some books which had been burnt by the FBI in New York City. The FBI had raided a bookshop selling by, by books by George Asawa on macrobiotics, which is a whole food organic diet. And they thought these were seditious, threatened the security of the United States of America, and they burnt the books. So my brother, you know, it's the sort of thing where we do, he obviously got a copy of, the, of one of those books blew his mind, he got into macrobiotics, and he turned me on to it. So that was what got us both into, and that was the core, the foundation of the whole natural food thing came out of macrobiotics, because that recognized the value of whole cereals, pulses, local foods, organically grown foods, etc. Um, and it's a diet about what you do eat rather than what you don't eat, which is always nice. Um, so, so that's what got us into it. My brother was in the course of opening a restaurant, um, and I was just—I was in—I'd come back from university in 1967, having dropped out of a tree and broken my back. So I was in a, in a wheelchair in Stoke Mandeville, and I came out of hospital. I was going to go back to university, um, but my brother unexpectedly had to leave England 
before he could get the restaurant opened. So I kind of said, well, that's this is what the universe is telling me to do in a sense. So I went in and completed the the finishing work on the restaurant, opened it up um, the tender age of 19. Wow. And <laughs> that's early. it was a it was a huge success. You know, it was it was pretty full every night. It was the only place to go and eat in a sort of flower power hippie London. So, you know, we gave away free, free food to the destitute, but also you know, John and Yoko and lots of the the cream of 60s society came in there. Um, Mark Bolan used to sit in the corner and play his guitar on, on, on special nights. Wow. And um, so that was that. And that was the only place you could eat brown rice or seaweeds or millet, buckwheat, half, you know, loads of stuff. And people wanted to buy it and cook it at home. So I opened up a shop. Um, I was 20 when I opened up the shop. And I did a magazine called Harmony, which was about you know, eating good food and living a, a life in harmony with nature. And I, I just had three issues of that. But you might have seen the John Lennon c cartoon on my website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, dedicated to that magazine. Um, and that led in then the shop. Other shops wanted to stock the food. So um, at this point, my brother had come back into the country and was, was, was running some of the things. But then I started up Harmony Foods to supply stuff to other shops that turned into Whole Earth Foods. Um, and that was that was really how we got into it. But it was, you know, once I discovered eating, once I started, the real thing was when I started eating natural and organic foods, I felt the difference as my brother had. So this sudden sort of vitality, focus, energy, health. That's yeah. what it's all about. And... Um, and once you once you got that sort of feeling, you want to share it with other people. And if nobody, you know, because it was a wasteland out there. There was just you, you couldn't buy brown rice anywhere. For instance, I mean, I eat brown and white rice. I stopped being a vegetarian in my mid twenties, but um, which is not to say I'm a meat eater. But it's um, you know when you when you realize how important this is, you do want to share it. And um, we were slightly messianic in the earlier days. I'm happy to say that we've chilled out a lot now. <laughs> and so that was that was really what let it worked. It worked. So we wanted to tell yeah. it. It's a bit like the um, you see a lot of people on these. I think they're called raw vegan diets at the moment. It seems to be the new kind of. Uh, Kind of whole earth thing i guess i don't know if that's new to you but <laughs> probably well, not no i i it's, it's that's i mean it's great you know if people believe and it, it what, what's really important is people are looking at their diet and relating what they're eating to how they're feeling um and acting accordingly because that's what macrobiotics is about it's about understanding ultimately on a gut level how your diet affects your health yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no intellectual level, you can eat certain things to stay warmer or to be cooler in hot weather and so on and so forth. But um, but it's basically understanding that connection. Raw vegan doesn't really um, push my buttons. Again, we're living in a northern climate. A lot of the food I really love, like naturally leavened rye bread and um, beans, are they have to be cooked to eat. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure about the sprouting as a wonderful thing for everything. So, so yeah, people are at least thinking about food, which they didn't used to. Food used to just be 
something you ate to live. And, and in the 60s, when I was a young boy, um, people looked towards a future when all we would, when science would produce five pills that we would just take each day and that would supply all our nutritional needs. That was kind of the way it was going. Hmm. Soon we won't have all this fuss and bother of eating and growing foods. We'll just take pills, you know. It's, <laughs> it's gone the other way, I'm really pleased to say. Yeah, that's a good thing. Did you find it difficult to convince people that kind of food and health were kind of connected back in those days? Oh, it was a very... Absolutely, yeah. It was really hippy-dippy shit, you know. You are what you eat, ha-ha. And, and I would get, you know, and my brother, you know, we'd be talking to people, and quite often you just get, you, you, they'd be, you, you could tell somebody looks at you and think, this guy's nuts, he's a completely bonkers, what's he talking about? And I'm pleased to say I've managed to sustain that all my life. You know, when I got into chaos theory, people thought it was a bit bonkers. And now into um, the the consciousness pervading the whole universe people say oh my god that this guy's out there he's a bit nuts but <laughs> but i know i'm on the right track you know when i when I want to get that response it's fun yeah definitely can you talk a little bit i mean not everyone knows kind of what chaos theory is could you kind of give us a a brief kind of uh outline of what chaos theory actually is it's a, it's an umbrella term for a whole sort of concept that has now branched out into several different sciences with different names because mm. there's no chaos theory like E equals MC squared or the theory of relativity. Um, but it's, it's the recognition that structure arises in the natural world through self-organization. Mm. And you can see this happening in in weather systems you can see it happening in a rainforest uh where whilst nobody plans how many frogs you're going to put per square meter and where they're going to be or which way the rivers are going to wind or how much it's going to rain or how tall what type of trees you're going to get you get this very interconnected ecosystem where everything is working in harmony with everything else and that's from the bottom up. Or you look at, um, gosh, hang on, I've got to, um, you, you look at uh, how our body works and uh, the millions of components of a single human cell. And you just, you just see so much self-organization and order coming, coming up. And, and it, chaos theory tends to look at parts of science that were never examined before to look at the noise rather than the hard data. You know, this, this is the noise that they used to try and sling out of equations because they didn't want you know, to, to confuse the, the hard deterministic facts they were working with. But that's where a lot of the interest, a lot of the information is, is, is on the in the fuzzy edges rather than the defined um, fine territories. Mm. I think uh, it's interesting, this bottom-up sort of... Uh ideal kind of thing is, is uh i don't know if you've ever heard of a group called anonymous before um they're a kind of internet collective that are, that are, they're, they're bottom up they have no leader they have uh, and they you know they're they're amazingly effective as a group and that was i guess the same kind of thing this kind of you know self-organizing kind of uh system i suppose <laughs> well it, it, it's so important and one of the things i do in uncommon sense in the first book is make it clear how much how many wonderful things have arisen 
out of the chaos and we just take it for granted because it is invisible. Mm. But, you know, the whole music industry, you know, it's difficult to pick examples of things that are completely unregulated and free anymore. Um, and this wouldn't apply in France, but in most of the world, music is free. You can, you can have as many beats per minute as you like. You can have your own mix of violins and guitars and computers. You know, you can do whatever the hell you like. And we have this incredible wealth. You've got a, a, you know, something to suit every ear on the planet is going to find some music that tickles its fancy. And if it doesn't, it can make, you can make your own music. Um, and that's nobody ever planned that. It's just happened. Um, even the airline industry that, that enables us to fly, you know, to any pl any part of the world um, at pretty pretty reasonable prices, considering you know what a three month sea voyage used to cost. Yeah. Um, and that that came out of two bicycle mechanics in Ohio, the, the Wright brothers, was wanting to create a heavy a, a flying machine. Yeah. And they didn't know you'd be able to have fly 300 people across the Atlantic in five hours, you know, 80, or 80 years later. It's just, it's fantastic. And that's completely out of the chaos. Um, food. You know, there's just, there's all sorts of different food you could eat right now. And you know, when my brother and I set out to introduce natural foods to the diet, it just, it happened. We didn't have 10-year plans. We didn't have government backing where there were no regulations saying, you know, that you've got to cut back on white sugar production or, or you've got to, you know, sell this many sesame seeds by 2000, the year 2000. It just, it happens. And um, so we get so much out of it, out of the chaos. And then you look at the examples where it's top-down organization. And, you know, in the news today, we have the NHS, a classic example of, you know, complete top-down management mm -hmm. or the, the, the national curriculum that is, reducing the standards of you know british british children are now way down the international rankings yeah it's ridiculous um, it's one of my personal pet peeves though <laughs> yeah um and it's just wherever you get that top down that's where you actually get disorder and mess and dissatisfaction when people are really planning trying to plan it and legislate it and put you in jail if you don't go along with it mm. you know i'm all fine with companies planning you know companies maybe have five-year plans but if their plans start to go wrong they don't put people in jail they change their plans yeah it's a big difference what's the difference between chaos theory and anarchy anarchy means self-rule along with you know it's a word that's gotten a bad name for itself mm. um as has as gay now means homosexual rather than light-hearted and spirited mm. um but and anarchy, it's and you you have previous anarchists. Uh, I never really studied anarchy myself, and I didn't even know that my book could be my first book could be called Anarchist until I'd finished writing it. Really, um, but yeah, anarchy ideally is organization from the bottom up. Mm. You know, without blowing anybody up in the course of it, or you know, it's it was the sort of Russian empire who, who put the um, negative imprint on anarchy and sort of killed, murdered, you know, executed anarchists, hunted them down. And some of them were, were bomb throwers and so forth. And, and many weren't. And there were arguments within the anarchist camp over that as well. I mean, it's very, I was very sort of 
surprised when I took my, um, I showed my book to AK Distribution at the Anarchist Book Fair. They're, I don't know if you know them, they're, they're the UK's main anarchist book publisher. Yeah, they do, I think they do CDs as well, don't they? Yeah. And distributor, that's right. Yeah. And um, I told them about my book and sent them a copy and they phoned me right back and said, oh, we're really interested. Um, bring some down to the Anarchist Book Fair at Conway Hall next week. So I went down there expectantly with a box full of books in my boot, went up and introduced myself to them. Um, noticed that one of the books they were launching, with big promotion launching at that fair, was the Beginner's Guide to, to Fist Fucking. And um, so they were very open-minded people. Yeah. <laughs> and I introduced myself, and, and, and suddenly the, the man's face dropped. And he said, uh, I, I'm really sorry, I've got to tell you this, you know, this sorry to tell you this, but, um, you know, we, we're, there are five of us here, and we hardly, you know, we're anarchists, we hardly ever agree on anything, but the only one thing we do agree on is the violent overthrow of the state. Hmm. And I had a whole chapter in my book on the power of nonviolent protest <laughs> and on the dangers of violence and becoming what you, what you seek to overthrow. And, uh, and that had put these anarchist booksellers right off my book. Oh, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't sure how to feel about that. Actually. No. <laughs> okay, so how did you go from, well, I, I suppose there, there probably is quite a natural progression here, but how did you go from a uh, chaos theory to uh, kind of the sun? How did that emerge? Um, it, it really, um, after, after Uncommon Sense, a few years after I published that, I realized I needed to start work on another book. And I wasn't even sure of what it was going to be about. And I can't believe that I didn't start out with a book on the sun, but I didn't. I had another another idea in mind or theme in mind, which was uh, to do with evolution, um, DNA and that sort of field. But after, uh, I don't know how many pages, I just started to go into a bit of topic drift about the sun and about early man worshipping the sun. I can't remember what the connection was with, with the book I was writing, but I, uh, I couldn't get off the subject and I suddenly realized how this is. This is the biggest uncovered stone or the biggest elephant in the room and this is really something I want to write about. It's, it's as, as important as recognizing that the food you eat affects your health. Um, it's as important to recognize the, the light of our life, that which makes life possible and that which provides the materials of our life in, in 93% of us is built of stardust, um, is alive itself. And once I you know, got into it, it's, it's a real no-brainer. Um, and yet it's been so thoroughly burnt out of our culture for the last, 16, 1700 years that we don't even consider it. You know, we think, oh, that's, that's nuts. You know, sun worship, primitive and ignorant. That's what dumb savages used to be until the, the righteous Catholic church came along and told us how it really is. You know, they've yeah, got it yeah. right and, and, you know, destroyed anybody who thought that way or any, any, all the sort of pagan, um, Gnostic books in existence were burned. You know, every trace of it was uh, was wiped out. And even 
many early churches um, were built and still are built with the doors facing east so that you have your backs to the, ch to the sun mm. when you're looking at the pulpit. So, so they could sort of find any sun worshippers who were turning around and breaking the law. And when I use the term worship, you know, that's almost been bastardized. You have this impression of people groveling on the ground and throwing their hands down and saying, I'm a worthy sinner, you are great. Whereas the original meaning of worship, if you go back to the Vedas, implies absorbing the energies of that which you are worshipping, of sort of being, being with it, emulating it not sort of groveling at its feet. Um, and with the sun, of course, you don't need to go into a special building or wear special clothes or have intermediaries because it's there and it's just... And yet most people in this world will have spent more time thinking about what type of sunglasses they, they, they like wearing in their lives than they will have thought about the actual nature of the source of life itself. Yeah. In your opinion, I know this is, might seem a bit of a weird question, but in your opinion, what is the sun? A, li a, a, a life force, um, a living entity with super consciousness. Um, and it's not something we share any DNA with, so I really not, can't be led on. I'm not really sure what, what, what the stars think about what they say to each other, but they're all connected to each other by electromagnetic field lines. Um, in the same way that neurons in our brain, you know, send out synapses to thousands of other neurons. And it's, it's a very complex, which you could go into the actual nature of the sun. It's got seven different layers. They do different, all, all have specific different functions. Some of them rotate around each other at different speeds. Um, but the key is that it's this bundle of electromagnetic energies and, and fields that are interfacing with each other. They cover its, its well, this chromosphere level right above its surface is, is a whole nest of electromagnetic field lines interconnected. Then the corona, which takes up more volume than the sun itself, is this huge electromagnetic field. And, you know, when you look at us, if you take the electromagnetic field away from our body, we're, 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 we're dead meat. You know, it is that invisible field, life force, whatever it is, that, that whilst our body may be creating it, that's what the life is that we're experiencing and thinking with. That's where our mind is. It's not sort of located in our cells. And um, the sun is designed to create these complex electromagnetic fields. You know, they're... they're they're not necessarily running the sun any more than our brain or mind is our mind is running our our heartbeat or our digestion or our circulation but um but the whole purpose of this complex mechanism is really to drive its energy fields and that's and and those you know there since I wrote the book I found about you know I, NASA had discovered this um this whole magnetic flux tube that connects the sun to the earth. And it comes out of, I mean, they measure it with these six satellites that are measuring electromagnetic field. And they know all the parameters of it. It's got the diameter of the earth. And it's like this huge tube connecting the earth to the, the sun's corona. And every eight minutes, 
they, they recognize tons of high energy particles pass back and forth between this tube. And yet, you know, we're still going around with this, this cultural mindset that says, oh, the sun is just a dumb ball of gas that compressed according to gravitational principles and then exploded in the middle and it's giving out light, you know, forgetting that that explosion is contained by uh, a level of the sun, the, the, the radiative zone, that's as thick as 25 Earths and as thick as gold at its leading edge that's, that's designed to hold that, that blast in and transmute it into the energy of light, which brings us life. So it's, you know, it's a really wonderful, wonderful organism, yeah. if you can call it that. Yeah. So according to some, um, the sun's very close to wiping out all of my, my iPhone and my iPad, potentially, um, and all my technology. Is this, what, do you have any uh, views on this kind of um, this sunspot EMP kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's... My views on that, which we, we can go into it, are, are completely separate, though, from the, the reality of it, is that this, the, you know, there's nothing malevolent going on. This is something the sun's been doing for you know, a few billion years, um, is sending out coronal mass ejections, which is what you're talking about, where tons of high energy, or millions of tons of its high energy plasma will hit parts of the Earth. And um, in the last 10 or 15 years, we have developed a technology that we have become very dependent on, um, which could well be melted and disabled by this, whether it's the sat-nav. Um, I'm not sure of how it would affect um, cell phone communications, but wherever you've got actual power lines transmitting energy across the earth, that's what the plasma will immediately gravitate to will sort of go straight into them and melt them because they're, it's like 20, 30 times the maximum load that they're ever designed to carry. This has happened in Quebec in 1988, um, and the power lines were all melted. But it happened in that area of Canada because this blast came off of the sun, not at the, you know, came off of the sun, traveled into space in the direction of our planet, mm. which is a moving planet. So it's, you know, it doesn't have, it's not always going to hit us, but it, and it hit that part of the earth because that was exposed to, you know, the, to it when it hit and it wiped everything out there. Now, if it was a much bigger coronal mass ejection and it might hit a quarter of the planet's surface or even a half, well, probably not a half of it, but it's, um, you know, whatever the consequences are of it, I don't think it's a wipeout humankind. I mean, we, we, America and England, particularly America, did its best to wipe out um, all the facilities in, in, in Baghdad in their shock and awe attack on Iraq. Mm. And they destroyed the sewage plants, the power plants, you know, the electricity generation, everything was wiped out in shock and awe. And yet the Iraqis are still surviving. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it could be big shit, but it's nothing to be, you know, angry at the sun for. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's not the sun's fault. He's not doing it deliberately. No, no, no. <laughs> Maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> um, can you, uh, one thing that really interested me, uh, was the kind of connection between the sun and, uh, Sirius. I was wondering if you could, uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, well for that, 
the main thing I can say is buy the book by Walter Cruttenden mm. called Lost Star of Myth and Time. That's going to be excellent. I haven't read that yet, but I've heard it's excellent. It's, it's fantastic. He actually interviewed me on a little radio station he does in California. And, um, and then he said, and he sent me a copy of his book, which just blew me away. It's really well written. And it, well, before I sort of tell you what it postulates, I, I will mention that in case, in case our listeners don't know that, um, the vast majority of stars in, in the galaxy and presumably the universe have partners. So they're not a single star drifting through the galaxy, it's two stars, it's, it's called a binary system um, by astronomers, and those stars rotate each, around each other like a couple of periscators as they travel through the galaxy. Um, and in Lost Star of Myth and Time, Walter Cruttenden puts forward very convincingly that Sirius is the partner star to our sun. So it's like, you know, your partner star doesn't have to be in the immediate proximity. You could have a long distance one. And he shows how their, um, their orbits around each other are actually what caused the precession of the equinoxes and the, rather than a wobble in the Earth's orbit, um, and how they change the nature of life on Earth, depending on how how many serious vibrations we're getting compared to sun vibrations has quite an, an impact on the the actual course of civilization. It's a fascinating book. And would also maybe go to explain why the Egyptians had such a connection with Sirius and the Dogons, if it is in fact our sister sun. Mm, yeah, it's interesting stuff. Now, I mean, a good sort of hefty section of the book is... Uh... A kind of examination of how science and religion uh, look at the sun and this, particularly at consciousness and you say that um science in particular poops the idea of a conscious sun is it not just because scientists don't yet have the tools to measure and explain such a thing or do you think it's more than that well it's partly that but the the core reason really is that the um there maintaining the taboo which the church imposed upon any such thoughts because the church took a complete monopoly you know commanded a monopoly over all things spiritual or esoteric mm. whether it was astrologies sun worship states of bliss um, it all had to go through the church and the church ran the universities and schools for, for quite a few centuries. So any scientists and thinkers going through their establishment had the whole church line drummed into them. And if they chose to question it and step outside and do naughty things, they would get severely punished, whether it was life, whether it was, you know, home imprisonment for Galileo or burning at the stake for Giordano Bruno. Um, so scientists just said, okay, we'll leave those items alone. Scientists don't study sociology either because they can get in trouble with the government for that. That's the government looks after society. And, you know, the scientists scoff at anybody who might study that as a science. Um, you tell me about it. That's my field of uh, academia. <laughs> uh, and so... 
if scientists were more open-minded about it, if they didn't have this sort of this headset that it's, uh, it's stuff and nonsense, they may well have by now developed tools and techniques and experiments that were able to verify this and see the nature. They would probably understand a lot more about the cosmos if they did take this on board. And for a start, we wouldn't need to have this mysterious fabrication called dark matter, um, which uh, dark matter and dark energy is supposed to make up 80 or 95%, depending on who you're listening to, of the universe. And, and they're completely unfathomable, undetectable. You know, they're, they're less real than homeopathy, which scientists readily scoff at. And suddenly they're saying, you know, our galaxy is made up of dark matter that we, we can't detect. We can see through it. It doesn't, you know, it's just completely not there, but something must be there. It's, it's not a substance. It's, it's a name. I got this off the NASA website. It's a gay name given to the answer to a problem that hasn't been solved yet. Hmm. Um, and once you recognize that stars are living beings, they're living entities traveling as pairs, moving through their galaxy, you can understand why stars at the outer edge of a galaxy are moving at the same speed as stars at the inner edge. That's just the way they're moving um, as they travel around the galaxy. And without understanding, if it is, is all just dumb matter acting according to nothing but you know, Newtonian principles like a rock falling from a cliff, um, if that's all it is, then you have to have an invention of something to explain why the stars at the outside of the galaxy aren't moving much slower than the ones at the inside. And that's where dark, dark matter comes from. Um, but when you realize that it's not a dead system, you don't need that shit. Yeah, yeah I, I always find it funny that sometimes scientists who kind of mock... Uh, you know, religious people act in a kind of a more fanatic way often than the actual religious people themselves. It's quite interesting. Yeah, they have they have the same taboos and rigid thought patterns, even though they put them to more stringent tests. Yeah, has there ever been any actual attempts from the scientific community to kind of explain consciousness or look at kind of the sun as a sentient kind of being? Or well, certainly not to look at the sun as a sentient being because it's it's a very very difficult one just to study human consciousness, it's still the, the greatest unknown in science is what conspires to make us conscious. And it's such an unknown that, in fact, a, a, a lot of scientists do not believe that we have consciousness. Mm. And they believe consciousness is an illusion of the brain that is, serves some evolutionary purpose and they're not sure what. And... This is the whole, the whole free will conundrum because we tend to think that we have free will. Mm. And I, in my book, have extended free will throughout the universe right down to the, to the, to the quantum level and everything in between. Yeah. Um, and you know, David Bohm, sort of pioneering early quantum physicist, spoke about seeing electrons in a plasma soup acting as if they were individual living entities aware of what was going on around them. Um, and it's just the in-between area nobody recognizes, and, and including the sun. So um, key to um, 
to, to grasping what is going on. It, it's just much simpler when you see that consciousness yeah. around us than when you screen it out. Uh, you make an interesting point in the book about religion being kind of hardwired into us. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, it's, it's something that we have been doing from the beginning of time. Um, is connecting with the spirit of the outside world. And people used to recognize this in trees, in certain springs, in mountains, and some, some were more worthy of worship than others or had, had a stronger vibe than others. And it's, you know, this belief in spirit of some sort has been part and parcel of humanity for as long as we have records. An organized religion take that facility and channel it into certain, you know, rigid, rigid, defined paths. But we, we always have it, and and people, people sometimes you know pay lots of money to to buy something that used to belong to a to a famous or, or amazing person of some sort, and it's almost as if they're recognizing there's a spirit in that thing. Yeah. yeah. Or it might just be you know investment collecting, but but it, it really is um, you know we we people don't really want to live in a house where lots of horrible things have happened, and uh, you know we're quite intuitively cognizant of that of this. However, sort of well you know however much education has drummed it out of us, um, and you know in that it is hardwired. I, I really don't believe that we have to have to have intermediaries to connect us with the world around us. It's great to have people who sharing knowledge and techniques and good understandings on how to do this, but it's something that we really can do and should do ourselves. Mm. And you know when when you feel good on a sunny day, that's religion. That's pretty hardwired, you know, we feel that vibration mm. of sunlight and we feel uplifted by it, and, and, and higher. You know, our spirits, our spirits are raised on a sunny day. Unlike if you go into a room, switch the lights on really, really bright, and turn the central heating up, you don't get that same feeling. That's that's not the same religion in, in the room. Um, and that so that's that's pretty hardwired. Feeling good on a sunny day. <laughs> yeah. Why why do you think religion? especially in the past, always feared the likes of uh, Giordano Bruno and Galileo and so forth? Well, because it's their biggest competitor. I mean, that's the absolute competitor. There's, there was lots of fighting, battling going on between some people who worship the sun and regarded as a god and, and the early Christian churches. It was, it was bitter fighting, smashing temples up stuff yeah. because that was the main religion. But... Catholicism had the Roman Empire behind it, so they prevailed. And you know, as we know in today's world, might is not always right. Um, but this is what happened, and they they had the firepower and the manpower to destroy to destroy the opposition. And and they even today, I get suspicious about the paranoia that's instilled in us about the sun. You know, you mustn't go out in the sun because of a just cover yourself in sunblock first and the sun is being demonized in our culture and it's the source of life for god's sakes <laughs> so um you know i don't know if, if the vatican is behind that or not but it's... 
Um, according to science, at least, we're the most advanced species on the planet. Do you think it's possible that we're le less kind of in touch uh, as a species when it comes to kind of our true purpose in life? Yeah, we are. I mean, it's in, in some ways, uh, a bloody robin is more connected to its world than human beings are. I mean, we're, we are part of the world. And yet we're so disconnected from it, living in, in managed boxes, looking at screens most of the time. Um, and, you know, when, when the tsunami hit Sri Lanka and India, it was, you know, the animals all went for the high ground and the people had no idea what was going on hmm. um, until they were overwhelmed. And it's just that's not being in touch. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and our purposes are so defined by natural, national curriculums and what the nation needs and the nation's interests. And uh, you know, thank God millions of people are breaking loose from this today, you know, are getting in touch with things like with yoga and natural healing and natural foods. I mean, there's a huge positive upswell of interest in this stuff. But, you know, had it continued in the 60s, instead of being stamped out for a generation, um, I don't think we'd need terms like carbon footprint and, or be worrying about ozone holes or anything today because that really was what was going on in the 60s, was back to the land, connect with Mother Nature. And um, my God, did the uh, state come down on it like a ton of bricks. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, one of the sections of your book that I found really really interesting was uh, where you look back at kind of uh, animism um and uh kind of the kind of pre-organized religion uh, uh religion i suppose yeah. <laughs> yeah um do you think we seem to be a lot more kind of in touch with spirits and energies back then what do you think that is well there weren't so many distractions for a start you know um you're you're living in the world most of the time, so you are connected with it, and you're more aware of how your actions are affecting what's going on, and using that to you know to using that communication tool. It's just it has been drummed out of us as stuff and nonsense and ignorance today, and we get all our information in other ways and that that's pretty fantastic i'm not knocking what we do do but you know recognizing we have lost a lot of that connection with it and you can't even gaze at the stars i i, I mean i if i'm in the rocky mountains or something i love looking at the stars because you know, you're looking at the stars you're soaking in light coming from trillions of miles away across space yeah, yeah. years as light is traveling and it's actually going into the back of your eyeball and being absorbed energy that that vibration is being absorbed by your body and you know that's that does things to us and um as does absorbing vibrations from the world around us it's we learn from it our you know, synchronicity and serendipity increase um because that's how all of that works is through synchronicity and serendipity. And you know, the more we divorce that from us, you know, the more separated we are from it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I've always liked the idea that animism always seems to be more a functional method of getting in contact with these kinds of things. And it's 
always seems to kind of offer more variety. Seems well, like it, more, it seems a lot more fun than going via a kind of solemn conduit like a priest kind of thing. Yeah, it does. It recognizes that there it recognizes that there is a spirit in everything, and and some spirits you might want to get in touch with for certain purposes, or, um, and that's what animism is about. You know, as with any belief system, it can get twisted and you know, used and deviant, but no more so than established religions we have today and much and also you know combined with the knowledge we have today we we have some fantastic knowledge about the world around us and yet it's lacks so much power when we don't realize the nature of that world you know we have all this information about the sun it's like was a lilliputian studying um oh you know, it's just, just we don't really um, understand the big picture. And if we put the big picture together with the, what the wealth of knowledge we have on the small picture, we've just got so much, can get so much more out of it. Yeah. And so that's kind of the what my book is really trying to do, is just to bring that view of the world to us. So we, we realize we're living in a conscious universe. Um and we're just we're just one variation on that consciousness. Yeah, an interesting section of the book I found really interesting. Anyway, um, you only really kind of briefly talk about it. Is I think you pronounce it Aten? Is it A T E N? The, the Egyptian. Uh... Akhenaten. Yeah. Yeah, Akhenaten. That's it. Sorry. I didn't. Um, I mean, a lot of people ask me about him. I didn't give him a lot in the book. He was an important character, but he failed, um, and he did see. Son as the one and only God, which is something you know many people think um, he Moses got his ideas from from Akhenaten, um, and he destroyed all the other temples. You know, all all the other gods were being worshipped and statues were destroyed by him. So it was this very exclusive. The Son is a God; it's the only God. You know, and that's. That's not the whole picture, um, because there's lots of spirit out there. Yeah. And just to sort of dump everything else and, and you know, only get the sun was, you know, it was a brave, inspired move. But, but, you know, he didn't last long, and it reverted right after he died. The priests got back in charge with all their, their multitude of gods. Yeah. Would you say that was kind of the, the birth, in some ways, of kind of monotheism? It could have been, um, but the Zoroastrianism I gave a lot more time to in my book yeah, yeah. because that came up with a lot of concepts that have directly were directly taken taken up by the Abrahamic religions. It was heaven, hell, in between space. He had um, worshipped the light. Light was the ultimate god of Zoroastrianism, mm. and our sun was the local representative air agent of the light force, but light was, was it. And, um, but they also were animists. They recognized the spirit throughout. And their Zoroastrianism persists to this day, even though it was you know, nearly eliminated by, by Islam. Um, there are still a couple hundred thousand surviving in India. Yeah. Why, why do you think synchronicity is so often labeled as animism? I didn't know it is, but uh, I, I could see the connection between them. Um, if you've got 
you know, if you recognize the spirit that is in everything, it's more understandable how things do fit together in a synchronistic way. Um, it's like how often we will happen, you know, happen to look in the right direction um, at a right moment to see something really important or open a magazine and a book stand to the page with the information that you're just looking for. Um, you know, when you see the sort of spirit connection between us and the world around us, it does perhaps explain how some of these odd things just happen to come together at the right moments. Mm. Um, cause what, I don't know how much energy is required to make us glance in the right direction at the right time. It's not like a huge mechanical effort. It's just, Hey, turn your eyes this way, Greg. And you know, if something is doing that, that's animism. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's the spirit fields which we can't really put a measure on how far they extend and but um they do connect. So do you think in a kind of in our modern kind of consumerist society we've lost the ability to kind of commune with other beings like the sun or are we just out of practice? No, we're we're, we're out of practice. Um we've certainly got the ability but you have to exercise it to um, to use it. I mean, I've known, I've met uh, Tibetan monks who part of their training was to sit in a cave naked with a wet blanket around them and dry it out. Um, and, you know, they learned over years to sort of do stuff like that. Um, and, you know, in, the, in this case, it's primarily atrophied. It's just stuff you know, you've never you've never tried. And, you know, so, our, so the neurons in our brain aren't wired up um, to recognize it. People who used to gaze at the stars and the, and the planets recognized universally that Jupiter was the king of the planets. And yet Venus is often looks bigger than Jupiter in the sky. But, you know, when their eyeballs were absorbing that light, they were getting information out of it because light is the greatest conduit of information there is they were somehow reading out of that light that jupiter was the big man up there um and they also ascribed different types of personality to the planets um that was not just you know one culture that did that you know several different cultures would kind of get the same vibe from different planets and, and we don't get that at all i mean most people can't even tell the planet from a star yeah. in the sky um, which is easy to do. It doesn't sparkle, but um, but it's just it's very primitive primitive level. I mean, the Chinese acupuncturist used to sort of take six pulses um, you know, on on your wrists and find out everything about what's going on inside the energy of your body. That's a skill. Um, all the Westerners figured out they they saw these Chinese doctors doing it came back and said, oh, God, let's see. Yeah. Oh, they must be counting the heartbeat. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> and that's what they got out of it. <laughs> so the book is called Son of God. It's quite a uh, suggestive title, I suppose. Would yes. you say that you're, uh, in some ways, you're suggesting that we perhaps go back to a form, uh, maybe a different form, but a form of sun worship? Um, well, Son of God 
And the subtitle is Discover the Self-Organizing Consciousness that Underlies Everything. Mm. And certainly I suggest we should reconnect with the sun um, and recognize it as a living source of life um, and be appreciative of it. But that was the key that led to the realization and not just the realization, but it's, it's the inescapable conclusion that consciousness does permeate everything. And the sun is just a very highly evolved or developed form of matter manifesting the consciousness of, of the energy of consciousness. Um, so yes, I, I, I do recommend that we worship the sun, but also that we recognize the living nature of the whole universe that surrounds us on a, on a immediate level and on a cosmic level. And that's, that's what the book is really about is the implications and the inescapable conclusions of stellar consciousness. Now, I know there are some modern things. Uh, you, for example, uh, I've heard you talk in the past actually about uh, something called sun gazing. What, what is sun gazing? Um, sun gazing is the practice of staring straight into the sun. Um, it should not be done you know, flippantly or without long practice, a certain amount of instruction. Um, but I know that uh, the great English landscape artist, Turner, I just heard this on Radio 4 the other day, um, Turner loved to paint the sun. He, he, he has, if you look at his paintings, lots of them have a really sort of bright sun in them. And he used to stare into the sun at all times of day. And a friend of his is reported to have come up to him and said, how can you do this? Doesn't this hurt your eyes? And he says, for me, staring into the sun is like for you staring into a candle. Um, so I do it. Um, and I find it really, really empowering and uplifting. I, I love doing it. Um, but it took me quite a while and I can't always do it. But when I, when I can, I do. Um, you know, looking at reflections in puddles can be good. Sometimes, you know, when you're not trained at it or looking through trees when it's really quite obscured. Sometimes the cloud level is such that you can see the sharp outline of the sun without it being too bright. Um, that, but that, that's really sun gazing, and it's, it's got a long history to it in quite a few different cultures. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Um, finally, you, you've kind of you've tackled the state and now the sun. <laughs> what's what's next? Are you going to continue upwards to the universe, perhaps? Or well, I I I'd get to the universe. I'd go up from there after the chapter on the sun in the book. Um, what's next? I don't know. I mentioned my website because that's where you'll find it. My website is gregorysams.com. There's a couple, isn't there? There's two websites. I think. Uh, yeah. There's also sonofgod.net. Yeah. That's S-U-N, obviously. Um, what's next? I'm going to wait till January 2013 before I start my next project. <laughs> Just in case. And I'm not entirely sure what it is. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks a lot for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, Ken, it's been fun.
Robot Elephant Records, Nonima with Swarfigy at Section 27 Net Label, and a made up sound with Rear Window.
back. A little surprise there. We've uh, lost our MySpace heroes for good because we don't like MySpace anymore. <laughs> They're really annoying. So we've uh, abandoned ship and uh, gone over to SoundCloud. And so Daddy Tank is now doing SoundCloud specimens from now on. And uh, a long intro and a scary German voice at the beginning. It kind of freaked me out a little bit when I first heard it. Anyway, thanks to Gregory Sams for coming on the show. Really, really interesting stuff. Just uh, going to repeat those websites. Uh, the first one was gregorysams.com. And the second one was sonofgod.net. And that's S-U-N rather than S-O-N. Which is kind of confusing. <laughs> and that's actually the website for his book, which is out via Wiser. Very good book. I'd recommend reading it. It's, uh, it's nice. It's not kind of anti-anything, if that makes sense. It's a good diatribe-free <laughs> examination of this subject. And it's, yeah, it's really good. It's a interesting read definitely recommended anyway we'll be back next week with uh, our first female guest of all times uh, I'm quite scared the sausage city now is a, somewhat of a sausage fest except when Claire does stuff for us occasionally but yeah the, uh, the lady is uh, Lucy Wyatt and her book Approaching Chaos will be the subject so yet more chaos coming up <laughs> anyway we'll see you in two weeks time okay bye